Romans chapter 15. Enough tomfoolery. <laughs> Living with doubt that Christ is sufficient. Not just for our forgiveness, but for our righteousness. It puts us at a horrible and unnecessary disadvantage as God's own children in this world. We are invited by God to live by faith completely free from having to keep checking the mirror to make sure our hair and our face and our clothes and all these things look nice for God, so to speak. We're free from that. The doubt and fear that makes us believe we need more righteousness than that which God has given us in Christ as a gift, that's not just damaging to our own souls. It's a church killer. It creates a certain kind of culture. It creates almost this very uh, negative, self-righteous, uptight, fearful greenhouse where everyone inside of it is sweating so profusely from that pressure that they can't see Christ clearly. The windows, the screens are too fogged. It's a joy killer and a peace killer and a fellowship killer. And Jesus didn't die to lay heavier burdens on us. He didn't die to do what the world does to us every day without even trying. He died to set us free. And by His Word, which is always with us and always sufficient because it's outside of us, it doesn't come from our feelings, it isn't dependent on our feelings, it's objective, it's always there, it never moves. By His Word, He daily bears with us and helps us. And this freedom that He gives us leads to love, it leads to the unified voice of the body of Christ proclaiming to one another and to the world how we sinners have been welcomed by Jesus Christ. Let me pray and we'll walk through the first few verses together. Our Father, for the sake of Your name and faith in Your Word, guide my mouth today. Sanctify my mind and my words for Yourself. Help me to speak clearly. Help me to speak what the text says, Father. And I ask that everyone would be able, enabled to hear, to receive this word by your Spirit. I ask and pray this in the name and for the sake and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ in our midst. Amen. Verse 1 of Romans 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We remember here that strong and weak are being defined in terms in this passage uh, of one's boldness regarding their freedom in Christ now that we are justified by grace through faith alone apart from works. And so strong in this context means those who are able to enjoy their freedom in Christ in matters such as what they eat and what they drink. Those who are strong in context are able to eat and drink whatever they would like without abusing it, without enjoying it, or, or enjoying it without feeling like they're sinning or condemning themselves because they're taking part in, part in it, which would have been the major issue for many of the Jewish Christians in the church in Rome to so quickly move from not being allowed to go near any of these things and then to be able to enjoy them would have been very difficult. But there are spiritual reasons they couldn't and the cultural reasons they couldn't, and so it was creating tension in the church from both sides, both the weak and the strong in context. 
but the strong in this passage are not gauging their relationship with God by their works, but by His grace. And so they trust Christ as fully sufficient to not only save them, but also to keep them in the faith. If, if their Lord had not called something sin, if He had not said to something, no, you cannot do that, what it meant to be strong in this context was then to enjoy it without feeling condemnation for practicing it or, or thinking that you could. Weak in this context means basically those who feel exactly the opposite about their freedom. That is, they can't enjoy things they are actually spiritually and biblically free to enjoy because for whatever reason, they're unable to take God at His word that He has the power to keep them. And if God hasn't forbidden something, it's not a sin for them to enjoy it or practice it, but they can't walk freely in that. They should take God at His word, but for whatever different reasons in their lives, they can't do that. And so sometimes Christians become weak in these matters because we don't believe that God's word is sufficient. We just won't take Him at His word. There may be other times or or other reasons for not partaking in things that are much more personal or relative or subjective. And so it takes a lot of work to get past that and move past it. And so, uh, but here we're getting a little more insight into what's really happening in the hearts of those that believe in this way, that the weaker brethren in this way, imposing rules and restrictions on themselves and others, expecting that of others to have their same convictions when God has not imposed such rules on them. And then also passing judgment on the ones who do or can enjoy these things believing or treating them as though they're less righteous and less serious about their faith in God. And Paul does spend more time talking about that side. He just spent the latter part of chapter 14 talking really to the stronger ones, the bolder ones in their freedom, to be careful not to hold that over their weaker brothers and sisters or judge them by that or, or be, uh, you know, uh, reject them or cut them off from fellowship. And so that's certainly not part of what Christ is trying to do in the church either. But here, once again, He circles back to how chapter 14 started that to be the weaker brother or sister in these kinds of things when you don't need to be, there is really a much greater danger there for the condition of your soul. And he's trying to pastor both the weak and the strong in these things. Paul says that the weak in this regard are actually failing in their faith. They're not succeeding. Why? Because it's bad to have a conscience and bad to have standards? Absolutely not. The reason is because the weak here are weak because they are trusting their conscience and their standards to merit them something before God in addition to what Christ has done. And adding to Christ is as wretched as taking something from Christ. It's just as bad. It's just as evil. Paul doesn't tell those who are stronger in these matters to despise or pass judgment on the weaker ones over such things. Instead, he says, you need to bear with them in love. Nor, notice that, as Paul's saying to the bolder believer, you actually aren't free. I didn't mean that. You know, when I, when I tell you that you're free in Christ, I don't actually mean it because there are other people who don't feel free. And so, you can't be free either. You can't enjoy your freedom. That's not what Paul teaches. Of course you can, but enjoy it, he said in 14, as a matter of your own faith primarily between you and God. Don't use it to intentionally offend, uncaringly offend, 
or be reckless with it in front of others or make others stumble by passing judgment on them for not being as free. You can judge that way also. The command of our Lord to those who are stronger is actually to bear with the weaker in these areas where they are failing. We have areas of faith, the stronger, where they're failing also. It's just not what Paul is addressing here. It's more important to help the weaker than to please ourselves without thinking of them. Remember, the Great Commission is a command to make disciples. That's the command of Jesus, to make disciples. Learners is really what that word means of Jesus and His Word. So when people are weak, we don't want to look down on them, despise them, judge them, anything like this. We also don't want them to stay there. We don't want them to stay where they're more vulnerable to believe that Christ is not enough, which makes them also more vulnerable to the attacks and the temptations of the enemy to establish our own righteousness before God and our own reasoning before God. When people are weak, we don't want them to stay there. They're free to have convictions and standards governed by their own consciences. But when such things are seen by them as meriting them something before God or as effective in curtailing their sin, when they believe that, and Paul addresses this so clearly in the book of Colossians, and we won't take him at his word. He says that ascetic asceticism, more rules, more regulations, yes, it looks like wisdom. Paul admits that. It looks like the smarter thing to do, doesn't it? I mean, let's be honest. If this can cause so many problems, doesn't it make sense to just stay away from it? So let's make a rule that you stay away from it. That looks like, seems like wisdom. And then Paul says, here's the thing. Rules, law, have no value whatsoever in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, which means we're trusting rules to do something God has said they cannot do. That's why it makes us weak in our faith to do so. It's not that it's bad. Like, like, like we talked about last week, how for some folks, especially you know, when you hear it's talking about eating and drinking, so that's the example we'll keep using, right? There are other reasons people don't want anything to do with alcohol, for example, than just purely, like, I don't think the Bible says I can or something. You could have horrible memories from it, from your upbringing. Maybe you yourself struggled with it in your life. And you know that you can't hold your liquor. And you know that if you go near it, or are around it too much, or smell it, or even just have a taste, you'll go down a bad road. For that brother or sister, if you think, so therefore I abstain, beloved, abstain. Feel no guilt, no shame, no embarrassment. Abstain and be at peace. Right? Don't, don't. But hear what Paul is saying. Like, what is the reason we make our rules? If we trust in rules to accomplish something before God, we've told God He is wrong. That's the danger. That it's not that having standards is dangerous or bad. The world could use a few. Okay? We're dancing naked in New York City now with little kids around rejoicing in our individuality and our freedom. That's vile and disgusting. Like it would be nice to have some decorum. Like what happened to basic decorum? Right? What happened to being embarrassed? That was nice. But here, you, you can make rules all day. Rules aren't going to save anybody. Rules aren't going to do anything to actually stop the indulgence of the flesh. 
That's part of what the law showed in the Old Testament. Israel had over 630 commands. And they ended idolatrous idol worshippers in captivity in Babylon. By the time Jesus comes to the earth, they're being occupied by Rome. One of the most vile regimes the world has ever known. You, the problem with the weaker brother or sister in these matters is that they're weak because they're not taking God at His Word. They're trusting the rule they make to be the thing that actually makes them righteous. And Paul says it looks like wisdom. It sounds like wisdom. It's not. And so when somebody looks at verses like those and says, I understand that, but I'm still going to do this so that I can be righteous, you're, you're on thin ice there. You're, you're, you're saying to God, you're, you're not right, God. I know me better than you know me. And I need this if I'm to be holy. You need Christ. You already are holy. And to be holy horizontally for your neighbor, you don't need more regulations than God has given. You need a clearer picture of Christ. We're failing to believe the gospel when we won't take God at His word about rules and regulations. That's what's at issue here. And we have to get past all the straw man argument stuff and what sounds like wisdom, we got to get back to the Word. Remember, we believe in this church that the Word of God is the final rule and authority for doctrine and for practice. And so we, we have to get past noise and what sounds like wisdom and say, but what does the Word of God say? And Paul says, when you in the church who are, who are stronger in the matter of freedom see a brother or sister who is not, you don't disdain them. You don't cast them aside. You don't welcome them to quarrel over opinions. You don't give a, a platform, as he says in 14.1, to their weaknesses, but you also bear with them in their weaknesses and don't cast them out and make them feel like they don't belong just because they have some different convictions than someone else might. We bear with them in their weaknesses lovingly, gently, without judgment, without spite. We help them grow Help them become strong in these things as they will surely be helping us become strong in areas where we are weaker rather than leave them behind. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Very interestingly here, Paul goes all the way back to Psalm 69 to make his point. Psalm 69, verse 9, which is precisely what he's quoting, Paul is telling us that actually that was Jesus speaking. The psalmist wrote it, and the psalmist meant it when he wrote it. He wasn't in a trance, but that passage finds its actual meaning and fulfillment for all in Christ. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's Jesus praying. That's another thing, by the way, Paul shows us in this text, how to read the Old Testament. And the Psalms have to be read as though Christ is the one saying those things. And precisely what Psalm 69 says in this case is that Jesus sought to please his neighbors and those around him for their good to build them up rather than himself or he never ends up hanging on the cross. He bore with the failings of the weak. That's all that was around him. That's all the church is. He bears with us in our weaknesses and in our failings because he himself is so strong. But that meant, and here's the rub, 
that he was reproached by others because they reproached the God he was bringing to them. And so the more selfless Jesus was, if you want evidence of the fact that if you trust the Lord and say, I will bear with the failings of my weaker brother or sister, don't think that they are going to just love you and hug you and welcome you with open arms. They are not. The more selfless Jesus was, the more He was hated. The more kind He was, the more charitable, the more miracles He worked, the more He longed to proclaim nothing but Himself and God's truth and make God known because His love for and His loyalty to God was so strong, the more He was reviled by the weak, by sinners, by us. Until eventually, the weaknesses of others and their refusal to take God at His word and believe His promise for them in Christ and listen to the one delivering it when He proclaimed that He was bringing forgiveness with Him and would make those righteous who received His glorious gift, that got Jesus killed. So it's a very interesting text to bring in here. But He's letting you know how tenuous the church can be. Psalm 69 is actually, find out here, all about how much Jesus suffered because He obeyed God. And He did precisely what God commanded. And He took God at His word. And He longed for God. Longed for Him to be worshipped. Zeal for God's house, for God's holy name, God's presence. That consumed our Savior. And it got Him killed. He served others in weakness and it cost Him His life. And, and if, if there's a lesson to take from this, we have to know about ourselves and our own humanity. Even whether you're weaker or stronger, the old Adam is alive and well inside. We have to be aware of our tendency in the flesh to bite the hand that feeds us spiritually. It's there. It's there in all of us. Jesus, feed us. We'll, we'll bite His hand. We are spiritually suicidal by nature. We need to know this about ourselves. So, preacher, don't give me the gospel. I have that. You say the same thing every Sunday. Tell me how to live. Why? You have the Holy Spirit, believer, and you have the Word. Anybody can stand up here and tell you how they think you should live or even just tell you how the Bible says for you to live. But here's the thing. It won't save you. And if I harp on law, like you don't think, well, we need a 50-50 of law and gospel. No, you need the law to do its job, which is to kill you for not keeping it. And then the gospel to do its job and bring you to life because you don't and grant you the righteousness of Christ. We're drowning in sin. Often as Christians, we're drowning and trying to be good enough for God, which is also sin. Don't think your self-righteousness project that what you're doing is not sinful. If you are trying to say that you need to add, even if your intentions are good, Lord, I just want to please You. Praise God. That desire wouldn't even be there if Christ wasn't alive in you. But you need to know that God is already pleased with you in Christ for you. And so if you're saying, yes, but just out of the, out of the desire in my heart, I want to do more, God would say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Don't 
put on weight where I've taken it off. I made the bar very light for you. Don't put weight on it. We're drowning in our sin often. We're drowning in our self-righteousness often. And yet we don't want to be rescued. We don't want to be pulled out of the water by arms stronger than our own. We find in situations like this where we have to give our own righteousness as a supplement that we would much rather save ourselves. So we, we say to, to Jesus, we say to the preacher, if he preaches the gospel to us, don't save me, just teach me how to swim. Because if you save me, I'm going to always be dependent on you to save me, and I'm not going to know how to swim on my own. Beloved, Jesus came to get you out of the water, not to teach you how to swim. That's two different religions. But if someone throws us a life jacket and pulls us up, we reproach them for ruining our self-salvation project. And without realizing it, we might even reproach God for His mercy. Because all this mercy and grace means our works are worthless and unacceptable to commend us unto God. And we just keep trying to please Him. You don't have to do that anymore. Not for your salvation. Not for your sanctification. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does. And if you are obsessed and consumed with still trying, in spite of what Christ has done, in spite of what the Bible teaches, to make yourself acceptable to God, do you know who's getting left behind and not seeing the Gospel? Your neighbor. Because you don't have time. You don't have the... If, 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 if you serve somebody all day, when bedtime comes, you want to go to sleep. If you serve yourself all day trying to serve God in a way that will save you or make Him know that, that, you're, that, that He made a good investment with you and you take your faith, you don't have to do that. You're free from that. And God would not have you do it, not because good works don't matter, but because trying to get God's approval by being good even after you get saved is unnecessary. Your neighbor out here, they need you. They need you to wake up fresh. Right? The suffering church around the world right now, in 2022, news comes late. There was a, there was, there was a region in Africa where, where Muslim militant groups were just going through murdering entire villages because they knew there were Christians in them. They need us. They need us on our knees. They don't need us trying to earn our salvation. They need us believing the gospel so that we can help them. It's a tragedy when God's own dear children think so poorly of the God who came in Christ to save us. I know when I've blown it as a dad. When one of my kids gets scared about something they don't need to be scared about. I know I've yelled too much or responded poorly when I go to sip out of a chair and, and my kids do that or something, you know. Or if, if uh, you know, why, why are you so afraid to ask me to go throw the football with you, Carmine? Well, because I know that sometimes at night if you sit down, you don't, you don't you get upset if you have to get back up. Yeah, and I'm going to earn my way to heaven with my works. 
my little boy just wants to throw the football and I have no energy for him. Right? Oh, it's, it's, it's not a great example, okay? But if it, it just... The time... Jesus Christ freed you to have time with God to throw the football all day. I know that's a dumb example, but I, I hope you get it. Save your energy for the people that are going to hell and dying and don't even have life on earth, let alone their eternity. For your neighbor that is just racked with problems and trouble. Save your energy for them. God is pleased with you. God is pleased with you. I'm a subpar Christian. No, you're not. There's no such thing. You, All your sins are forgiven. All your righteousness has been granted to you by Christ. You are free. You are safe. You are His. Go play golf and hang out with people and talk to them and whatever you can do, just, just give it to your neighbor. God has you. Give it to your brothers and sisters in the church. Go have coffee with somebody or hang out with somebody or take time with somebody. Just that, that's, that's it. All the heavy lifting has been done. We have an obligation to bear with the weaker in their shortcomings because that's what Jesus did and still does for us. So it's, it's not us that those who are weaker are actually rejecting and passing judgment on. Really, it's, they're doing that of Christ Himself. And, and we aren't there to, those who might be stronger aren't there to pounce on those. And when I say we, I hope you hear, I say we on both sides. I'm not trying to paint myself as strong and everyone else is weak. It's not what I'm doing. Okay? Those who are stronger aren't there to pounce on those who are weaker when they fail. The failings of the weak. They're not going to be succeeding. But they, they think that they are. Because they have more rules. And that makes you feel better about yourself. They're not going to know that they're failing to see the righteousness of Christ for them. They're failing to believe the Gospel. They're putting a burden on themselves they don't need to have on themselves. They're not going to see it that way. If we could see, we would probably not make some of the decisions that we do, but we can't see. So in one sense, Amazing Grace is a beautiful hymn, and in another sense, it's not quite right, is it? I was blind, but now I see. Kind of. You know, I, we, we see men like trees walking, probably. We're in constantly need of another touch from the Savior. We're there to say to the weaker brothers and sisters, believe on Christ, trust Christ. He forgives you. He loves you. Trust Him. See, we, we bear with them. 4 in verse 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Paul's use of Psalm 69 then was actually the Holy Spirit's method of reminding him to let us know, the reader know, those in Rome know, that whatever was written in the former days of which Psalm 69 is a part, that was written for our instruction now. But now that we know we're no longer under the law as a covenant, then how is it written for our instruction? It's not written for our instruction on how to be in the covenant by our works and our obedience. So how is it for our instruction? The Old Testament. Does that mean that we just make little life application lessons? Uh, uh, so be a David. Uh, be a, you know, be a Joshua. No, good luck with that. You know, in the David story, you and I are not the king, the rightful king that went out and beat Goliath. We're the Israelite soldiers over here terrified to go to war that need a Savior 
to go out and fight Goliath for them. So how is it for our instruction? First of all, if that's true, and it is, what a feast the whole Word of God is for His people, which is what 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us. All of it's profitable. All of it. All the Scripture is there that we might know God. It's, it's all there in God's providence and is all useful for us precisely because now we understand in light of Christ coming that the whole Old Testament, all of it, the Bible they had, is also pointing them to Christ. That's why any part of it is useful for us because it takes us beyond itself to Christ. We don't read a command and say, okay, now I need to do that. We read a command and say, thank Christ for obeying that for me. Now, how might I love my neighbor in light of such things? All of it was written to instruct us in how to see Jesus and how to be saved through His forgiveness and righteousness because our works and our effort, none of us will be saved by those things. We'll come to trust in our own worth and work so much that we'll end up doing what Israel did with all that law and all that glory they saw. Worshipping idols as a means of worshipping ourselves and end up forsaking our inheritance. But the way the Old Testament Scriptures give us hope is by pointing us to Christ for us. We're not to read the Bible. And if you've ever said this, I'm sorry. Alright, I'm not out to just offend you here. But, but the Bible is not the acronym Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. The Bible never says that's what it is. The Bible is not that. That's not what God has come to do. He hasn't come to teach you how to swim. He came to get you out of the water that is drowning you. And here we're learning that all Scripture is actually meant to do that. Right? The Bible doesn't give us hope for life because it teaches us the right way to live. It teaches the right way to live in as to show us that we are sinners who don't live the right way. There were people who read the Bible like that. There were all kinds of them that read the Bible like that. There were people who, even though God had come in Christ to forgive them and all of their sins and give them all His righteousness, you know what Jesus said to them in John 5.39? You searched the Scripture, and they did well and intently with all seriousness and a desire to please God. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. You think that by obeying them and knowing what you should do, you'll get eternal life. And I tell you, they bear witness about me. And he was talking about the Old Testament there. The Bible as we know it didn't exist yet. It had, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. What testifies about Jesus? Genesis to Malachi. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life, he said. No, I throw me a raft and let me do this myself. I don't need welfare. Oh, you better. Or you're not going to be saved. You're going to have to take God's food stuff. Alright? And Jesus is subsidizing the bill. Alright? We're going to have to become welfare recipients. And don't think Jesus didn't do that on purpose. So that our hearts will be softer to those 
thinking that the world will pay all their bills for them and save their soul. If reading the Bible takes you to yourself and what you must do to gain eternal life, you're reading it like a Pharisee. And the weight of it will kill you and it will make you resent Jesus at best and be frustrated and upset and miserable all the time or it will make you hate and deny Him outright at worst. And you would have, you would have been right with the Pharisees. God help us. Yeah, get Him out of here. This, you're going to make everybody think this is for free? You're going to, we have been serving God our whole lives, Jesus. It's our life. We get up, we read, we study, we memorize, we try to teach other people, we're trying to do our best, and you come down here saying you're from God and you eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? And when you talk about bearing with the failings of the weak, what does Jesus do? Now, most of the time, He eviscerated these men. Most of the time. But do you know what His heart for them was? Why don't you come in and eat with us? What are you doing out here? Mad. There's, I've prepared a table before you in the presence of all your enemies here. Come and eat with us. Like He says to the older son in the parable, the father, you've always been my son. What are you out here mad for? This is your food as much as it's your younger brother's. Come and rejoice with us. That's how you bear with those that are weaker in the faith. You don't look down on them and you don't belittle them and put them in a group where you just, I can't even fellowship with those people. Then you're not like Christ either. God help us. You say, no, 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 there's a feast in here for us. There's a feast in here for us. Come in, sit down. Bring all of your history. Jesus has brought all the bread and the wine. Let's feast with Him. Right? Don't reproach the One He sent to save you because you trust in your own righteousness. Please don't. But God means for us to find endurance and encouragement in the Scriptures. Since they aren't giving us the code for earning God's approval, but are teaching us God's holy, righteous, and perfect law that we have not and cannot obey, that we may come to rejoice that this God sent His only begotten Son to save us and make us righteous. The Scriptures would only be a weight, a killing weight, if they were law without gospel. Or law and gospel as the means of salvation. They are law and gospel. Those are God's two words to us. A weight that would crush us. But since God is the God of what the Scriptures were written to give us, Endurance and encouragement. He's the God of that. That's not just what His book is about. He wrote His Word to tell us about the Savior in whom all our salvation is found. So in verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement, that's His specialty, grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Us, us Christians in Rome, Paul, we don't even get along. We're so fractured. Maybe in Rome. Rome was a big city. But, but verse 5, Romans 15.5 for Moundsville, for little old Moundsville in the Ohio Valley. You don't even have a Chipotle. 
in the Ohio Valley. Could you imagine? One unified voice for the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ for the people here. Everyone outside of these walls, like everybody inside these walls, needs to know that God loves them that much. That when Jesus was dying, you were on His mind. They were on His mind. This town was on His mind. This valley was on His mind. They need to know that because they probably think, and it's not your fault, I'm saying this is pretty common. They probably think, I, I can't go in there. There's somebody I'm bumping up against in life right now. A very real situation, very close to my family. It's not a, not a bad thing. What I mean is that won't come to church because he says, I can't. I've been in jail. I, I have felonies. I can't, I can't come in there. We built it for you. We built it for you. Come in. Feast with us. Jesus has brought bread. Jesus has brought the wine. Come and eat with us. We're no better than you. That needs to permeate the church for the sake of the lost and the church for the sake of the church. One message for us. Romans 15, 1-6 means that everything the weak and the strong in the church need to live together in unity for the sake of the glory of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, is there, here, for them in His Word. It's all there. Believe it. You'll be fine. That's really what this section of Scripture is doing. It's all here. Trust what I've told you. Trust this book because this book doesn't terminate on itself but leads you to Christ. That's why I wrote it, God says in His Spirit to us. Jesus Christ is here for us all the time. Where can I find Him? Tell me, where can I find Him? I don't hear Him speaking to me. I don't feel Him leading in my life. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what to do tomorrow. Where is He? He's right here for you every second of every day. And look, if they come in and take it from us and burn all of them, The Spirit has written it on our hearts. We just haven't discovered that yet. They'll have to kill us to take it away. And in so doing, beloved, we're just winning. Therefore, in verse 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's the section. Verse 7 bookends the section that began in 14.1. Where you have the exhortation to welcome the one who is weak in faith. That's the goal here. So the whole section is actually written so that the stronger in the church, rather than throwing out the weaker and kind of distancing themselves from them, would say, no, 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 you, you come in and eat with us. You sit down right here by me and we'll eat together until you've had your full of Jesus to the point where you know he's got you. Because tomorrow it might be me that doesn't believe it. And I'll need you, my weaker brother and sister, to pull me back around next week. That's the goal here. There will be weaker brothers and sisters among us, but not because the gospel is insufficient, but because we refuse to just believe God's Word. 
That's why Paul wrote chapters 14 and 15. And here at the end, he points us finally and first and foremost to Christ in the Word, our true and better sacrifice. Remember when he began this larger section in 12.1, teaching us the implications of being made new creation by being justified by faith apart from works. Paul called us now living sacrifices. So when you find out, okay, I'm to serve the weaker brother rather than disdain them, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a... I'm a living sacrifice now. My whole life is given up. He said our whole lives now, our lives of worship and our vocations, our stations in life, we are all priests to God. We are all beloved children of God, accepted by Him, forgiven and righteous, free to live, free to love, in service towards one another, invited to take part of the life of Christ in the world or for the world. The reason this talk of conviction and freedom matters when earlier, remember, he said it's not about all this, but sometimes we have to have this discussion because we forget that it's not about all this. But the reason it matters is because God has created us new in Christ to be one for the glory of God in this world. And if we can't do that, which we can, but we, maybe we just refuse to get past ourselves, One of the most unique things about us as the church is that rather than exclude or try to throw out the people that slow the organization down, right? We don't fire people. We don't, I mean, there's, there's something in the Bible teaches called church discipline, but that's just so they'll come back to their senses. It's not to get rid of them. But one of the, that's one of the most unique things about us. We help and serve and love the weaker among us. Few things will show the world what Christ has done more clearly than welcoming those and loving those who are difficult. And we are all difficult in our own special way. This is one difficulty. The glory of God is shown by us when we love the unlovable, when we welcome them among us, when we just refuse to do anything for each other but give each other the gospel. So believe the promise, beloved. Believe it for you. For you. Take the Lord at His glorious, saving, authoritative, and sufficient word. Christ for you. Christ for you. Be free. Let go. You don't have to live in bondage and fear and shame ever again. You don't have to worry that you won't measure up. You don't. He does Christ for you. Let it go. All right, let it go. There's a spirit of bondage over many of you. Let it go. Be at peace. Be free. This is Christ for you. Live in peace for the sake of others. You have nothing to work for, nothing to prove, nothing to earn, nothing that will separate you from His love. So let us welcome one another. Sometimes we're strong, sometimes we're weak. Jesus Christ, however, is the same for you yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8. Amen. Would you stand?